you're listening to I Might Be Wrong, a podcast hosted by myself, Rich Needham, and my co-host, Henry Salmon. Welcome, everybody. We're back. We're back. It's the summer. It is the summer, uh, which means it's raining outside and it's cold. <laughs> it's not that cold. No, but we had a glorious day yesterday. We did. Um, so nice and hot, 30 degrees, lots of beer. Too much beer, maybe. No, I think we had the right amount of beer and then the wrong amount of whiskey. Yeah, well, can you never ever have a wrong amount of whiskey? You yes. probably can. <laughs> I, def- I definitely can. I'm rich and I've got Henry with me, as you can hear. Hello, yes, I'm still Henry. And uh, <laughs> yeah, we're in person, which is nice. And we've got beer. So. It is, which you can probably hear clunking in the background because we've we've switched recording locations yet again. Uh, I don't know how this is going to sound, but good, I think. Yeah, I think so. Let's try. Let's Let's do it. So it's your choice, and who have you brought us this week? The choice is a West Coast American grunge band from the 90s. Lead singer has blonde hair. They're obviously not Nirvana. Uh, <laughs> it's Everclear who hates the Nirvana comparison. Really? Yeah, so I think Nirvana, Dave Grohl was asked about this, and he was asked about Everclear sounding like Nirvana, and were they kind of stepping on each other's toes? Because they were on the same record label. And he said, no, no, Bush of Gavin Rossendale fame. Bush are the closest to Nirvana, but because they're more kind of of a grungy sound, but um, Everclear are not. But they've had this comparison, which I think is a bit unfair. They're, they're quite different. Um, they're a very different band with a very different background. So I realised even though I know the name and I know certain songs very, very well, I don't actually know Everclear particularly. And when you said you wanted to do Everclear, I went and had a listen and I... I don't think that the Nirvana comparison is unfair. What I do think is unfair is that it's only one part of the Everclear sound, and there's a lot of other bands' influences. Sound alike is unfair because the bands that I'm thinking of were around in the same era and potentially after Everclear anyway. But I do think there's a lot more to their sound. They're not just a pure grunge band. There's other things going on in there. Yeah, they, they cross over into quite a few categories i guess some of their earlier work is very grunge it's almost punk then some of their work is it's much more poppy uh, well yeah pop rock um there's there's a right old mix and the thread throughout all of it is is a hopeful one it, mm-hmm. it's positivity because of the background of, of the lead singer which i'll go into but there's a yeah, there's there's some hopefulness and there's some storytelling. And the songs are simple. So the, the lead singer, Art Alexicus, says he can't write a complex song. It's not in his in his kind of in his DNA. He can't write a, a happy song. He says it sounds too too silly. So he's mm-hmm. got a style uh, and that's how he writes. I think they're an interesting man because they've got a very interesting background. Their storytelling, but the stories they tell are from, you know, some pretty nasty times. So tell us about the band. Who are the members of Everclear? So they are Art Alexicus, uh, lead singer vocals. He's basically the guy. Then there's Craig Montoya on bass, Greg Eklund on drums. So it's a three-piece. Okay. That was the band from Inception. I always thought they were from Los Angeles because they always talk about LA. They talk about a lot of places in LA like uh, Culver City, um, Santa Monica. But they formed in Portland, um, and that brings in some interesting dynamics. But it's all about art. And it's about him because he had a very tough upbringing. So his parents split when they were young. Uh, and because of 
financial difficulty, they moved to a housing project in Culver City in, in LA. I drove through Culver City in 2000. And it's there are some places which are quite run down. It's kind of it's a funny mix of movie studios and then pretty desperate areas. And he grew up with, I think, quite a few brothers and sisters. I think there were five. So they were, they were in hard times. His brother died of an overdose um, when he was in his teens. His girlfriend died of an overdose. He was a junkie, basically, at 13. He was shooting up. Oh, wow. And he said he couldn't afford cocaine or heroin. So um, he was... He <laughs> Tough was shoot- times for a junkie. Yeah, so he was shooting up with um, meth. Um, and he was in a, in a really bad place. Um, he said he couldn't afford it. So he said, uh, I mostly shot crank, which is methamphetamines, or whatever I could steal from somebody's house. So this is a 13-year-old. Um, he said, I grew up in a black neighborhood... And he said, I found that I'd go to my white friends' houses outside the project. And once their parents knew where I was from, they wouldn't let me play with their friends. So he started getting ostracized. And then he said he had a a black girlfriend. And he said something along the lines of it's it's personality and character that are important to him. And that doesn't, you know, that transcends all of, you know, the these other identities and uh so he didn't feel constrained like his friends were and it frustrated him that when he talked to his friends they said well you can't play with these people because they're of a different color and he couldn't understand why that was a thing so wait he was born what mid-70s so he was born in 1964 in la oh okay right so he's like so he's old 10 12 years old in the mid-70s in an la project which would have been not segregated officially, but pretty segregated at that point in time. Yeah. So, so having a, a black girlfriend at the time in LA, it wasn't that normal, right? And and I think that's um, added to, I think, a quite a kind of isolationist stance where it's me against the world, right? So he had a, a, an overdose at twenty three, um, oh. and he says he's got a kind of addictive compulsive disorder so he was obsessed with drugs sex running around he kicked out the drugs mm-hmm. and then became a complete workaholic so is that still in la in his early 20s la early 20s and okay. he kicked all the drugs went back to school and then went to ucla became a journalist and then off the back of that he kind of in the late 80s he was frustrated with la he kind of felt he wasn't getting anywhere he was trying to work in bands and it wouldn't really work. So he moved to San Francisco where he uh, got involved in the cowpunk scene. Now, any of you music lovers, okay. it's kind of country punk, I guess. It's a funny <laughs> genre. Um, Fine. Think country and western, but slightly more. Um, shouty. Shouty. He, fought, he founded a record label. And so things were kind of on the up for this guy. And then in 1992, the label went bust because the distributor went bankrupt um, his band broke up and his marriage fell to bits and he got divorced. So basically you've got a guy who's kind of on the edge of 30. He's gone through all that history. He's had family members die. He's He can't make it in LA. He can't make it in San Francisco. So he's having a bit of a disaster. And so he moved to Portland. Well, even that San Francisco thing sounds like, it sounds like the upswing of a success story was like he's got himself out he's got himself a successful record label he's married he's settled he's got a band all of a sudden it's like record scratch screech to a halt 
falls off a cliff, everything goes wrong. And you'd think at that point that would be a trigger to just fall back into life is shit, turns of drugs, massive downslide. Yeah. And so he got to Portland. He placed an advert in the paper. He got two responses. One from a drummer, one from a bassist. Handy. There's the band. <laughs> um, and he said that they, so the, I think Eklund the drummer said his first phone conversation with him was mad because he was so energized. He's so, you know, this this guy, right. he doesn't do drugs. He's a workaholic. And you don't start record labels and completely clean up on the drug side and try and form a band if you're not a bit of a, a personality. Yeah, it's almost like entrepreneurship for a musician slash someone who's creative and inspired by that world rather than someone who's pure businessman. Yeah. And by this point, he's got an interesting story and he's been through a lot, which you get a lot of bands where they'll talk about drugs and they've probably done a few drugs and they'll talk about this and that, but he's properly done. I mean, he's properly lived in the project and he's had a, a nasty childhood. I mean, I think there was, there was stories of, child abuse which i couldn't verify so i haven't got them but it's right. kind of he's, he's had a, a pretty tough time yeah and that gives you a lot of fuel for the fire right yeah so and this fuel for the fire started with everclear's first album which they made for 400 dollars um <laughs> called world nice. of noise they self they self-made it they scraped the money together they mailed cassettes everywhere and then once they'd mailed out the songs to all the local portland i guess music crowd mm-hmm. they went to south by southwest um in austin in texas and he said he came back and he had 47 messages on his answer phone <laughs> everyone wanted to find out who the band was amazing and from there things started to uh, to improve and that's one of the things that i guess was awesome about that part of musical the musical scene was you're in a grungy garage ish band yeah you can just as long as you've got the gear in terms of guitars and amps and all that kind of stuff you can just record yeah yeah exactly. you know yeah tape costs money yeah you don't have an engineer so you're probably having to do it yourselves but you can throw something at least a demo album together to then send out to people yeah and that demo got the ear of capital records now i think there were connections before then so when he was working as a music journalist, he was in the scene. So people knew of him, I think, and he probably had a a, f- a few people he could contact and throw that way. But yeah, so he um, signed to Capital. Capital Records, obviously, had Geffen under them. So they had Nirvana, they had Sonic Youth. They they were a big deal. Yep. And then he changed the drummer, recorded Sparkle and Fade, the album. And then, then they produced their first single, which was Heroin Girl. The label thought that was a a good way to start things off because of the background and because they're an interesting band. As soon as they released that with a blonde singer and everything, everyone said, oh, it's another Nirvana. And uh, that pissed them off. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, at that point, so 1994, they were getting big. They started to sell records. And then in 1996, they recorded the album we're going to talk about, which is so much for the Afterglow. Which is pretty awesome. And it's got a lot of a cult following. Yeah. And, and when you say... It, it's it's pretty awesome. This is a platinum selling album in the states. This is the biggest selling album from anyone from Portland. And um, there are quite a few Portland bands floating around yeah. there that we've talked about before. So it's big. 
one of the singles, Local God, that was in Romeo and Juliet, the film, the Baz Luhrmann film. Yeah, yeah. Um, That's so one of the, I think that might be where I picked them up. It's where a lot of people noticed them. In fact, it was double platinum. So yeah, and this is where the story turns a bit. So they're on the ascendancy and then the Portland crowd don't really like him. So okay. he now he sounds like there's 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 two sides to this story. Maybe he's a bit of a jerk. He's probably quite, you know, when someone's a workaholic and you, you're you running around trying to make music and you're a self-starter, you'll probably piss a few people off. And so he rubbed the press out the wrong way. So he started kind of fighting back and it, it got a bit antsy. But his, you know, the, the star was in its ascendancy. So when this album came out, is this an album you picked up at that point? I picked it up in, yeah, so it, it was released in... 96 i think i probably heard it in 97 and the reason i heard it was some friends of us an american family flew over to stay with my parents so they stayed in our house and their son had a load of albums one of them was dookie by green day which i'd found out about about six months before Mm -hmm. so i was like he's got dookie and then (laughs) and then he said oh well if you like that try this and he put on so much for the afterglow with the first track being so much for the article. Now, yep. if you um, if you haven't heard it, the song starts with a bunch of vocal harmonies, lovely, beautiful, chorusy harmonies, and it starts off. And when he pressed play, and you hear all these harmonies, he was looking at me, going, "Turn it up, turn it up." So I was like, so I was cranking up the the amp and parents' house, and you hear these wonderful harmonies. And then about 10, 20 seconds in, you hear this guitar feedback slightly kick in. You know, it's the classic 90s sound yeah. where you put your guitar too close to the amp and then it kicks into this absolute headlong, brilliant rock classic. It's an absolute belter of a tune and I was blown away at that point. Well, it's that huge onslaught of noise, isn't it? The, the classic 90s alt-rock. It's American alt-rock. I, yeah. I don't think it's... I think it takes part of grunge yeah. for its sound, but it's not all grunge. And it takes a lot of other... Th- I mean, we'll talk about comparisons at some point, but there's definitely a lot in there. But at its core, it's, it's it all, rocks out. Yeah, it's all rock. But then in the middle, you get to this this middle eight and there are hand claps coming in. And it's like, yeah, there's hand claps. <laughs> and, I, and I love that stuff because it's just... It's it's fun. And right. and he's and he's put that into the music. So so that's how I found them. And yeah, I, I never looked back from that point. And I, but I think because I found them through this guy none of my friends knew about them they were never on the radio so i think they only started making it to the uk when some of their their later albums some of their ballads or slower songs came out which were more kind of i don't know radio 2 friendly music but nothing like this yeah that's how i found out about them and yeah the the rest of the album kind of follows in that similar vein it's a mix of full-on Alt rock, as you say, down to some kind of quieter tunes. All right, so we've talked a little bit about the sound, but there's quite a lot of variation on the album. Do you want to dive in and talk about specific tracks? Yeah, well, that first track is a classic. The next song, uh, Everything to Everyone, is great, and, and it's got these lovely lyrics. Um, there's a lyric that says, I think you're blind to the fact that the hand you hold is the hand that holds you down. Now, he was a bit of a womanizer, he said in interviews openly that when he was in his 20s and 30s, he kind of enjoyed seeing a woman with another guy and making it his night's effort to try and sleep with her. 
and try and split up the relationship. That was his kind of thing because he's a bit of a nutcase. I can't imagine why he might have rubbed people up the wrong way in the Portland scene. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So he's probably pissed off a lot of people, but his his lyrics talk about, you know, trying to help people, trying to rescue people. So maybe from his view, it's like, oh, you shouldn't be with that guy. Come with me with me. Now, this is someone who's been married, I think, four times. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, so he's not got a very good track record, but it's that kind of, you know, when you meet someone who's just full of energy flying around and it yep. just... They trip over themselves and they, they cause trouble for, the, for themselves. I can imagine huge amount of charisma, lead singer, guitarist, huge probably self-belief given what he's gone through and then what he's continued to achieve. Probably quite a charming combination of things. Yeah, which leads me to one of their bigger songs on this album, which is I'll Buy You A New Life. Now, this is a slower song. It's much more radio friendly. It was very popular at the time. And I like this song. And... There's one thing that really pissed me off about this in the lyrics. And it's a lyric that says, I will buy you a new car, perfect, shiny and new. That's always bugged me because he says new twice. I'll buy you a new car, perfect, right. shiny and new. Now, I was thinking that's lyrically, that's that's poor. I don't <laughs> like that lyric. So didn't think anything of it. When we were doing the, the research for this, I found an interview about it and someone had asked him the same thing and he said um actually i think it was one of the band members and he said i i asked him why he said new and new right after each other because that's typically not done and kind of odd and he mentioned to me that for him back in the day a new car was actually a new used car so for him to say perfect shiny and new he wanted it to be very clear that he was saying i'm buying you a brand new car so it's his way of saying I've actually got the money to buy you a new, new car, not a new right. used car. So that was his way of portraying it. So lyrically frustrating, but I don't know, the, the, the thoughts there. I want to jump back quickly because you've skipped normal like you. And one of the things that I, I guess, was thinking as I was listening to it, just bands, sounds, that 90s vibe, one of the things that struck me is this has got a bit of a Weezer thing to it. Yeah, they do have Weezer influences. I don't think they were ever influenced by Weezer because they were, they were what, Weezer or what, 94 or so, maybe just a bit before that? Sometime around that, the 90s. And so there's definitely parallels with that music. I think the thing that gets me and the thing that makes me think Weezer is the fact that it's rock music with a bit of a pop sensibility to it exactly yeah so i think for those of you who don't know everclear but are weezer fans this would be a very good band for you to check out if you're if you're interested yeah but i think people who do know nirvana and know weezer they're now confused because they're trying to work out how both of those sounds managed to crop up on an album i suspect yeah and it kind of happens i think we're the vocals are probably different. So for, for Nirvana, you've got Cobain's kind of strained, very kind of guttural voice. Snarl. It's, it's, it's a just snarl. snarl. Whereas Alexakis's sound is is more polished. Yeah, he's more of a not middle of the road American rock, but he's got more of a melodic rock voice. Yeah, although an interesting fact popped up on another website that I was reading. It was another interview with one of the band members. And it said, uh, Art would speed up the tape when we were done recording. So he said, if you've ever tried to play along with an Everclear song, you'll notice that you're out of tune. 
that's because we were speeding up the tape with pretty much every single on, on the song after it was recorded. And at the time, we didn't have the ability to do that without changing the pitch like we do now. If you listen carefully, you'll notice that. I think Art did that because it helped give it a little more energy. So one of the byproducts of that was that when people heard them live, they were like, they sound a bit kind of slow and a bit, his voice sounds deeper. And it's just because they've, they've taken every song and just sped it up a tiny bit. That's fascinating. I don't think I've ever, I've never come across an album where that's been clear that that's been done. That's a nightmare from a tuning perspective, because if you're trying to play along to it, you'd have to tune everything up just a touch and then tune off your own guitar rather than an actual specific note. Correct. Yeah. So, you, so you, all of your, if you had a tuning fork or a, an electronic tuner, it's a waste of time because you have to, he's dicked around with the, the tuning. I'm tuning to drop D in a bit. Drop D in a bit. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So yeah. And the album continues and, and there's a mix. So I will buy you a new life is this kind of radio friendly ballad about hope. And, and then there's a song called Amphetamine, which is halfway through which is just about this image of a girl who's I don't know, the, the lyrics for amphetamine are kind of are kind of wonderful it's uh one wonderful so it starts with saying she came out west to find the sun she lost her name and found a new one and it's all about this girl who's clearly down and out she's a drug addict he says she's perfect in that fucked up way that all the magazines seem to want to glorify these days and it's all that kind of heroin chic that was kicking around in the late 90s um yeah. and it's him falling in love with that that image yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because he's playing both sides of the coin there. He's both talking about how he's attracted, not attracted, attracted, but like sort of in- captured by that image, but also very aware of, it's almost like a slightly snide dig, at, like you say, the fashion industry and, and that look and feel. Yeah, I mean, he says, she looks like she could have been happy in another life. It's one Brutal. of the lyrics, and it's and it yeah, uh, and it's all about him trying to get her out of that because he's got that knowledge of what it's like to be in that hole. So mm-hmm. he's saying, I mean, at the end of the song, he it says she's the saddest girl I've ever known, and she wakes me up in the middle of the night just to tell me everything will be all right. And it's kind of this thing of they've got together. She's the one, even though she's the down and out, that's trying to support him. So fun song, noisy, but they, those drug references were they're running all the way through. Yeah, and again, it's a write-what-you-know thing, isn't it? He understands both the addict, recovering addict, no longer an addict, or not addicted to drugs, maybe addicted to other things, type personality. Yeah. And so I'm guessing, you know, America's always had, always, but certainly for the last century has had a drug problem that it wants to try and hide and cover up, but it's it's definitely there. And I remember this being a big thing. You think back to the... Late 80s, 90s, I mean, even Guns N' Roses and bands like that. And there's always this like tutting and, oh no, can't can't talk about these things about yeah. drugs, despite the fact that large chunks of America were struggling with them and still are. You, the opioid problem in the States at the moment is, is rampant in a lot of cities. Yeah. And American politics, mainstream media don't want to talk about it. And they're particularly take a dump on anyone who wants to talk about it from a kind of real life perspective yeah and then he has a go so one of the songs later songs in the album is called like a california king and he says i see you wear your checkered past like a shining suit of gold and he says it's a sarcastic shot at anyone who would think that of him of saying i'm kind of strutting around because i've got a drug 
use past and he's saying i've not got a drug use past i'm saying I've, 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 i'm through that and so it pissed him off i think i mean he says i'm sure that chip on my shoulder became a boulder at one time and now it's back to a chip because people said oh you're, you're using that to get your fame and you're using your drug your drug induced past but rock stars can't win because if they are fake about this stuff where they're like oh you know maybe had a sniff of cocaine one time and then has sung about their druggy past they'll get people throwing shit at them and if they actually have a druggy past that they've managed to recover from they'll get shit thrown at them you can't win one way or the other yeah yeah exactly it's infuriating so anyway they were mega successful then they started touring everything was good they had a comedy well it was almost band wrecking tour to australia (laughs) Okay. Um, it, it it seems like they it was just a catalogue of errors. So Montoya's bass got nicked on the Gold Coast, uh, the Extreme Games concert, whatever that is. Um, then in Melbourne, a firecrack was thrown on stage and he got really pissed off about that. Then he was hit in the face by a shoe and a thing. He said it knocked his teeth out. The rest of the band said he's talking bollocks. He just didn't like people throwing shoes at him. Honestly, um, who throws a shoe? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think it sounded like... So big big rock bands didn't go to australia very much right so when a big noisy band came to australia the aussies kind of loved it and they all went a little bit mad but everclear's quite a big deal in australia i'd say they're much bigger there than they are in the uk yeah and so it almost caused the band to break up because every every concert it was absolute chaos and there's an interesting backstory which i won't go into with um with their basis so well, I'll, I'll touch on it, but they're, they're, they're bass tech. They hired this guy who was one of the best bass players in Los Angeles. He's absolutely like super legend, um, a guy called David Leprinzi. And they asked him to come on the tour just to help out. And Alexicus said, are you sure you want this guy coming in? Because he's he's a really, really fucking good, good bass player. And we don't want to feel like the existing bass player is going to get Montoya, is going to get swapped out. And everyone's like, no, 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 it's cool. Let's have him as a base tech. He's, we're not going to swap him in. We're not going to swap him in. And then this the shoe incident and the firecracker incident happened. Montoya, the bass player, decided to leave the tour. And they're like, well, base tech, do you want to come and play in the band? Um, <laughs> so it caused all, all sorts of um, trouble. Wait, so Montoya just quit the tour rather than quit the band? Yeah. Oh, God. <laughs> and so they got in a, a better bass player. That just reminds me of the Beatles story where some I think it was someone asked Paul McCartney if he thought Ringo was the best drummer in the world and his response was he's not even the best drummer in the Beatles. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. That's fantastic. So the band then, um, in 2000, when I was really, really into them, they, started, mm-hmm. they released an album which is called Songs from an American Movie, part one. And his idea was to show the the range of the band. So they had a an initial kind of nice ballads uplifting album, which is the first part. And then a a kind of more grungy side, part two. They came out within four months of each other, but it was a bit of a shambles because they were trying to promote the first part, which was the nice part, mm-hmm. and that was released. But then they started recording the, the noisy one and the public couldn't work out what was going on. So they went to support Matchbox 20 or Matchbox 20 supported them. So they had Matchbox 20, who were quite a nice rock band. And then they played yep. the nasty, noisy stuff. And they were like, well, hang on, what's going on? Because they thought they were going to be touring the, the friendly album. Yeah. So it kind of caused confusion. And then that started trouble with the record label because 
they weren't selling records the way they wanted to they had to kind of stop a tour and then in 2003 they released another album which they thought was going to be the, the next big one and it was going to match their previous albums <laughs> so obviously in 2003 they had a song on there called the new york times now the record label was thinking brilliant this is a we can use this as a kind of uplifting homage to september 11th which is only a couple of years before and they were wanting to try and bring a nice new york song to the table <laughs> and alexicus wanted uh, volvo driving soccer mum which um has the line uh where have all the porn stars gone when the lights go down they all become volvo driving soccer mums so <laughs> you've, you've you've got this kind of this kind of split where the record label sees them as this kind of friendly radio band and they're like nah we want to be a bit more you know a bit more punchy than that what do you think of those albums they've got some really good songs on there some really nice melodies and nice stories uh i don't think they uh, at the time songs from an american movie album it's got some of the best songs uh, I, was, I was i was a huge fan i took it to the office i was working part-time in an architect's office and that cd was copied more and or listened to more by all these guys than any of the other albums in the room it did the rounds wait so is that the melodic version or the loud that's the version? friendly melodic one okay good. wonderful which is one of the songs off that album which is all about his daughter i think that's got 36 million plays on spotify it's, it's a big wow. old song so is it the case that those albums maybe should have been compressed so rather than having a massive part one and a massive part two and then this other album it maybe there's enough good stuff for an album but too much filler or whatever to sustain success i i think so i think i think you're right and that would have made made things better yeah so back to the the slow motion daydream album which is is less good the record label relented and they said all right well we'll we'll use volvo driving soccer mum as the lead single but they didn't promote it they were like come on it's a bit childish this is 2003 you know we're kind of slightly beyond the mtv generation and so they didn't promote it it didn't sell very well right. and at that point the two other members of the band quit and alexicus was on his own so that was kind of the effectively the end of everclear although they've, they've made a few albums since then but that's the problem in that sort of early 90s period was that if you didn't have record label support you weren't going to get radio play if you didn't get radio play you weren't going to get sales and if you didn't get sales you weren't going to get any more record label support it's not like the modern era where bands can be picked up on spotify and all of a sudden they're getting radio play because they're being listened to that way and it almost doesn't matter how much record label support they're getting because people will just hear them you yeah. know you, you've got the Lamax and Lauren Averns and people like that who will just listen to all sorts of different stuff and almost be listening to fan recommendations as much as they will record label recommendations yeah. and you don't need to rely on it as much and also you can record your own stuff yeah record labels are still important but if you're a big name you can do what Radiohead have done and just self-release everything yeah yeah exactly so they don't I don't know I think at the time they struggled. Interestingly, even though they had that scrap with the record label, he ended up with a job as vice president of artists and repertoire for Capitol Records. So he's kind of, he, he's worked with them because they know he's that kind of guy who can who knows a good sound. But I can see that because he's a guy who's worked in a record company already. Yes, they went bust, but that was, as far as your information is concerned, that happened because their distributor went bust, not because they had yeah cash flow issues so 
you know, decently run record label. You've then been in a successful band. So you've seen all sides of this stuff. Like that, that's an ideal person to put into those positions. So is Everclear still rumbling on or has he completely gone out of the limelight on that front? Yeah. So he, I I think he went solo for a bit, but I don't think those albums ever, they never got anywhere near me. I didn't see them. Right. They have released albums since then. So I think the band or he formed Everclear, but with other. Um, musicians and released a couple of albums 2012 they released invisible stars and the last album was in 2015 black is the new black both albums were kind of there was nothing new and you know music's moved on i mean mid 2012 there was the whole landscape of that 90s sound has, has vanished so maybe there's less of a home for them yeah maybe just interesting did you listen to those much or were they kind of brief listens and then not back to the stuff that i love exactly that listen to it thought it was it was okay uh, but there's nothing there's nothing special on those albums I, I don't think fair enough but that would have been based on the release dates of those albums part of your oh my god noisy rock music is amazing education right so probably a massive influence that yeah. took you into all of that stuff yeah massively i mean that it's exactly that i mean you said that you you might have found them through uh Romeo and juliet yeah, I think so. But I never really got into them. There are specific songs of theirs that I know really well. And then I listen to the album, like, I don't know, eight of these tracks. At yeah. All. I wouldn't be able to recall ever having listened to them. So I suspect I never, I never owned an Everclear album. They were never a band that were high up on my must listen list. But that's what I was saying about obviously they were pretty massive in the States. But they're also massive in Australia and some other places. But I don't think they were ever a big deal here. You think about the British scene back then, and if you were listening to American bands, obviously Nirvana, you've got Pearl Jam, uh, Foo Fighters a little bit later on once they'd been formed. You know, there there are American bands in there, but generally speaking, Everclear never really... I can't imagine that they ever troubled the charts. No, and they didn't. So if you, if you think they... They, they failed their tour of Australia. They think that some of their tours didn't really work that well. And I think they, they struggled to get the balance between touring and recording. So I'm not sure if they did tour the UK. They must have done. But I, I don't think they put that much time and effort into it, which some bands do. So I'm assuming you haven't seen them live. Correct. No, I, I haven't. <laughs> which is annoying because I think back in the, in the day, if someone said, pick a band in, in the late 90s, I, they would have been right up on my list. I'm genuinely surprised you never saw them at Glastonbury. Uh, I'm not sure they've ever played at Glastonbury. Really? Uh, yeah, I don't think so. Wow. You know what? I'm going to check it now. Because <laughs> I genuinely would have thought that even though they weren't necessarily massive here, Glastonbury has enough space for those kind of acts that they've seen be big elsewhere. You know, they might not play on the pyramid stage. They might be on the other stage. You know, you think about Granddaddy, who played the other stage mid-afternoon, that kind of slot, or maybe a slightly later in the evening slot. But I genuinely would be surprised if they've never played Glastonbury. No, I, I, I don't think they have. This is this is through a, a, a 20-second kind of panicked <laughs> Google on my phone um, in front of Rich. So uh, I, I don't think they have. Fine. Well, you haven't seen them there, which is 
more important than whether they played there because then you'd just be a bit sad that you didn't get to see them. Yeah, exactly. And and obviously you've never seen them, so... No, they were never on my radar enough. So, I mean, I could have potentially been dragged along to see them at... Because Reading and Leeds would have been the most likely place for me to see them. And if they had played there, I could have been dragged along by a mate and just genuinely not be aware that, that they were on. So, yeah, not on my radar enough uh, to really get into them. Yeah, but I do think they're one of those bands that will have friends, listeners who will be like, "Oh my god, I fucking love Everclear! I'm so <laughs> delighted you guys are covering them," even though I'm not as into them as maybe I should have been back then. Yeah, and and I think the reason for that is is quite simply you've got a, a front man who's he's gone from housing projects tragedies in LA. He's, nearly died of an overdose he's then gone to start a record label he's gone through divorces then he's got a you know a platinum selling band and then he's had crazy world tours which have gone wrong this whole bubble around this guy how can you not record interesting music if you like songs with stories that are nearly always based on fact uh go and have a listen yeah and i definitely will have more of a listen i do think i've ignored them unfairly I also think they just didn't get radio play and radio recognition over here at a time when we might have been listening to them. No, I, I don't think I ever heard them on the radio. Right. Ever. So. Cool. Well, if you're an Everclear fan, let us know. Let yeah. us know whether Henry picked the right album. Yeah, I, I did. Definitely. <laughs> um, it's the best one. So, Fair enough. Um, but yeah, uh, yeah I, I think they're uh, maybe they're a bit of their time. But for me, they're, they're a stalwart in my music catalogue. Brilliant. And a fascinating story. I'm impressed that he's still alive. So yeah. well done him. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Have a good listen to them. Cheers, mate. And thank you lot for joining us. Yeah, thanks for joining. And we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to another episode of I Might Be Wrong.